Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. So glad that you're joining me today. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. I am so excited about today's message. This is part two of Hope in an All-Powerful God. Now, some people think that that's no reason to be hopeful because I want to be large and I want to be in charge. But I want you to know God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean that we should lose hope. As a matter of fact, that ought to be a wonderful reason to be hope-filled. And so this is part two of the message. Yesterday, we looked at the subject of God loves all of humanity, and this is all coming from Romans chapter 9. I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 9 and read it through five times. You say, why five times? Well, the first time, you're kind of just getting the flow of what Paul is trying to say. The second time, you're getting a deeper understanding of what Paul is saying. The third time you read it through, you will find a common thread through a passage. And you'll see, okay, Paul is repeating some things over and over again, and it's kind of a common thread throughout the passage. By the time you've read it the fourth time, you are kind of anticipating where Paul is going. And by the time you read it the fifth time, you have a solid understanding and you don't have to worry about taking things out of context. And you don't have to worry about coming up with the wrong meaning because it's now begin to soak into your brain. You know, whenever I give a message, I try to read the text at least five times, sometimes many more times than that. And that way I can kind of get an overflow of where the message is going. Well, I want you to know God is indeed an all-powerful God. And we learned last week that he loves all of humanity. Even though we put up our feeble resistance and try to blame God for a whole lot of things, Paul asked a question, which is a rhetorical question. Who is able to resist his will? You can't resist his will. His will is more powerful than our will. Now, listen, I know you think you're a strong-willed person, and I think I'm a strong-willed person, but my will is no match for the power of God. His will is all-powerful. And so he's patient with us. Even though we have these feeble resistance, he's also patient with us in our faulty arguments. Now, think about this. It's pretty audacious for me to tell somebody else how they should live their lives. It's pretty audacious for me to be able to tell God how I should run my life because God is the one that created me. Paul says, who are you as a human to talk back to God? You know, whenever you create something, you create it with a purpose. And our founding fathers understood something about how God created us. As a matter of fact, the Founding Fathers used what they would call the design by nature, that we are designed by nature, really we're designed by God, and there's certain ways of doing things, right? And we are endowed with inalienable rights given to us, not by the government, but by our Creator. That's talking about God. And so Paul says, who are you as a mere human to talk back to God? You know, we create something. We create it and design it to operate a certain way. And when it operates outside of that design, there's going to be a problem. For example, you think about your car. Your car has oil in the engine. When I was growing up, my dad used to always tell me, hey, don't worry about running out of gas. Worry about running out of oil. Listen, if you run out of gas, your car's going to stop on the side of the road, but you can put more gas back into it and you're back on the road again. But if your car runs out of oil and that engine seizes and it stops, 
It doesn't matter if you try to fill it back up with oil again. It's, the damage is done. It's going to stop. The same is true with us. Listen, God created us a certain way, and He wants us to live a certain way. He will be very patient with our faulty arguments, but He designed us. And then we learn, thirdly, that God also designed us to fulfill His purpose. His purpose, not our purpose. Paul says that, that we have no right. I mean, what does that lump of clay, he didn't have the capacity or the right to tell the potter how he ought to make him. That clay is at the mercy of the one who is forming that clay. And then we learned that God loves us so much that he exercises his options. And we looked at this debate of whosoever will versus he chose us. Now, this is what is called the doctrine of election, or the doctrine of predestination. Now, I want you to know that God did not predetermine anyone to be separated from him. He predestined us to be sons of God, children of God. He predestined us to be part of his family. So maybe you're talking to somebody, and this happened to me one time. And so I was talking to this guy, and this guy says, well, how do you know that I'm part of God's elect? Well, obviously, this guy had done some studying. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you believe that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again three days later? And he said, no. I said, well, if you don't believe that, you are not part of God's elect. Well, he got a little offended. He says, that's not fair. You're setting yourself as part of the elect, and I'm not part of God's elect. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Jesus died on the cross as an atonement for your sins. He was buried and he rose again three days later. Will you put your faith and trust in him? And he says, no, I won't. I said, well, then you're not part of God's elect. I said, do you want to be part of God's elect? Just receive this free gift of salvation and you'll be part of God's elect. You see, we have an awful lot of an opportunity here to receive the free gift of salvation. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul spends the next chapter talking about it's with the heart that we believe and with the mouth that we profess our faith and we are saved. Now, that guy understood something. He understood what Scripture says, but he didn't understand there was 18 inches between his mouth and his heart. You see, God begins to convict us in our hearts. That's where conviction takes place. And then with our mouth, we profess and we are saved. So it takes that profession of the mouth, but it also takes the heart being under conviction. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And Paul says this is available to everybody. There's no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. The same Lord is the Lord of all, and he's going to richly bless all who call on him. Well, we got a third point that we need to cover. But I want to talk to you about this matter of God's mercy. You know, grace and mercy, it takes both for salvation. God's mercy is available, but it's not automatic. It's available, but he never imposes it upon us. God's mercy is available, but it always will change us. One of the ways that you know that you have received the mercy of God is that you are merciful, and it has changed your life. Now, that doesn't mean you don't struggle with bitterness. As a matter of fact, I was reading the story of a pastor 
who has passed away, Pastor Paul David Youngi Cho. He passed away in September of 2021, but he was the pastor of the largest church in the world. It's over there in Seoul, Korea. Several years ago, as his ministry was becoming international, he said to God, I will go and preach the gospel everywhere except Japan. Why? Well, he hated the Japanese. He had a deep loathing for them because these Japanese troops had done a terrible number on the Korean people in World War II. In fact, members of Pastor Cho's own family during World War II were brutally abused by the Japanese. And so, in Pastor Cho's mind, the Japanese were like the Ninevites to Jonah. You remember how much Jonah hated the Ninevites? When God called him to go preach to the Ninevites, the reason he didn't want to go is because he knew that God was going to be merciful to those Ninevites. And in Jonah's mind, the Ninevites didn't deserve God's mercy. And he knew if he went over there and preached to them, they would fall under the conviction, they would repent of their sins, and God would not destroy them. He hated the Ninevites. As a matter of fact, he even admitted that he hated the Ninevites. You would think when he finally went to preach the gospel to them and they all repented, you would think that old Jonah would have a change of heart. But he said, no, uh, that's why I hated those Ninevites, uh, because they deserve God's wrath, not God's judgment. Well, you know, when you really have received mercy from God, it changes your life drastically. So when Pastor Cho was invited to go and to speak before 1,000 Japanese pastors, he knew he had to take the engagement, and he took it with great reluctance, and, and he finally on that day stood up to speak, and what came out of his mouth was this, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And then he broke down and he wept. One by one, however, those Japanese pastors walked up to Pastor Cho, knelt at his feet, asked for forgiveness. One by one, they came up until all 1,000 pastors stood up and prayed. And then this went on and, and it changed Young Each Cho's heart. The Lord put a single message in his heart and in his mouth, and when he finally got up the second time to give the message, the message was, I love you, I love you, I love you, all because of the mercy of God. Listen, God is all-powerful. We can't deny the sovereignty of God, and God loves all of humanity, but he also exercises his options. And number three, as we're spelling out the word hope, he follows his plans. Let's look at Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't, therefore, depend on human desire or effort. but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Well, one of you will say, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Well, when you look at the sovereignty of God, God is a perfect, all-powerful God. And God is just beyond our comprehension. Paul says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul's overall point in this section is that God is just having mercy according to his will. He does not have mercy any other way than according to his will. Now, he's always holding up the infinite value of what is infinitely valuable. That is his righteousness. You see, his righteousness upholds his glory in his absolute glorious freedom. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll be gracious to whom I'll have graciousness with. He makes known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercies. That's what verse 23 is all about. God being merciful. That's the ultimate goal of the universe, is that the universe experiences God's mercy and that they will glorify him because of his mercy. So God in his mercy is beyond our comprehension. But God in his mercy is also beyond our capacity. Romans 9.16 says, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So Paul is driving home the point here. We are saved, not because we desire to be saved. Paul wasn't looking for the Savior. He was looking to persecute those who were worshiping the Savior. It doesn't depend on our desire. It doesn't depend upon our effort. You don't get more of God's mercy because you desire more of his mercy. You don't get more of God's mercy because you work harder to earn that mercy. Mercy is unmerited, undeserved. Now, Ephesians tells us a little deeper about this mercy that is beyond our capacity. I guess we could put it in the same vein as love. There's a mystery to love. Why is it that God gives us this capacity that is beyond our ability to love something or to love somebody? You think about marriage. Paul tells us that we are to dwell with our wives according to knowledge. Now, I want you to know, after 34 years of marriage, I have not completely figured out my wife. Now, I know her better today than when we got married 34 years ago, but there is still a mystery there is still a lack of my understanding in trying to figure her out. You know, she could say the same thing of me. But as I love her, I experience something that is beyond my capacity. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 3, that the love of Christ, it is a love that surpasses knowledge. I think that God gives us the wonderful institution of marriage so that we can have an understanding, and we can experience love beyond capacity. A more gasp is that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And in verse number 20, Ephesians chapter 3 says, Now to him who is able 
to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or all that we imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Why was it that Pastor Cho was able to finally say, I love you, I love you, I love you, instead of I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, because he was a recipient of mercy. You see, mercy does what nothing else can for us. It does what knowledge can't do for us. Mercy gives us something that is beyond our capacity, beyond our power. You know, I want you to know that God is also knowledgeable beyond our experience and beyond our choice. Do you know that Jesus had to die for our forgiveness? There was another way. Don't you think that God would have come up with it? Let me tell you a story that might make this clearer. You might be listening to me in a car or in a truck, and you might be cruising down Interstate 64 right now. Well, let's say that you're driving home, and you're cruising, man. You're moving along. You're up there on the Easy Pass Express lanes, and and let's say that you're going 105 miles per hour. I mean, you're flying, and you get busted. And the police officer, he caught you on radar, and he's pulled you over, and and they've impounded your car, and, and he brings you straight to the courthouse so that you will immediately face the judge. Well, the good news is that, that you're in the county in which you live, and the county that you got busted in just happens to be the county in which your dad is the judge. So you're thinking, man, this is golden. Because you know that your dad, he really loves you. And uh, you're thinking, well, you know, he loves me so much, he's going to let me off the hook. Everything's going to be fine. But just as you begin to enter into the courthouse, uh, you remember something else about your dad. You remember that your dad is a really good judge. I mean, he's a just judge. He never punishes the innocent. He always punishes the guilty. And he's a good and he's a just judge. Well, now, all of a sudden, you're getting a little nervous. Which is going to win out? Your dad's love for you or his justice? I mean, here's your dad, and and he loves you, so he'll want to do good to you. But he's a good, he's a just judge, and and he's also going to have to follow through with the law and and also going to have to render a just verdict. And so uh, they listen to your case, and your dad listens to the case, and there's no doubt about it, you are guilty. I mean, the radar uh, has been calibrated, the police officer was an eyewitness to you speeding, and you have no leg to stand on, you are guilty. What do you think the judge is going to do. Which would win? Love or justice? Well, it's hard to know what he might do, but let me walk you through a scenario that shows how he might solve the dilemma. You stand before your dad, the judge, and he says, now, son, this officer says you were going 50 miles an hour over the speed limit, and how do you plead? you would say, guilty. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, Claim that you're guilty. You're guilty. And so your dad takes the gavel, declares you guilty, and then he gives you the charge. 
Here is the charge. You can either pay a $500 fine or 10 days in jail. Well, you say, I don't have $500, Dad. Uh, Judge, Your Honor, I don't have $500, and I really don't want to spend 10 days in jail. The judge has declared a verdict. You can't pay. You don't want to go to jail, and you don't have $500. Your dad, because he's a loving and a just judge, does something most unusual. He takes his robe off, and he excuses himself, and he comes down to the lower level, and he goes and he grabs his briefcase. He snaps open his briefcase and takes out his checkbook, and he writes a $500 check to the court, and he signs it. The payment has been paid in full. Your dad paid the penalty for you. Oh, he declared you guilty. There was no doubt about it. He could not withhold justice, but he also paid the fine so that you could be set free. Listen, God loves humanity. He exercises his power. He follows through with his plans, and he is the one that determines what equality is. Letter E, equality is found in the justice of God. Romans 9, beginning at verse number 30. What shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the faith of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock of offense that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. You know, when I mention that word equality, I know that's probably caused a lot of red flags because we're looking at our culture today, and social justice has become a convoluted term meaning different things to different people. People often use it as a catchphrase for any form of government that will promote a redistribution of wealth, as well as collectivism and the expansion of civil government, which wrongly infringes on the jurisdiction of God's institution, the family, and the church. You know, such a view of social justice both contradicts and and denies biblical justice. Biblical justice, rather than social justice, is that It provides a society with a divine framework for reference in which to operate. Biblical justice is the equitable and the impartial application of the rule of God's moral law in society. It is what our jurisprudence has been based upon, the Ten Commandments that God has given us. So whether it's exercised through economic or political or social or criminal justice, the one constant is that we understand that God's moral law is how we should be operating. Paul ends this chapter by talking about the offense of the rock of Jesus. It is a rock of offense. You know, today's message is offensive if you want to try to work your way to heaven. Paul says, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained it? It's a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israelites, they pursued it by the law. They worked really hard and they haven't attained that goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it could be done by works. They stumbled over the stone. Paul says, see, I lay 
a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that causes them to fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Oh, but I want you to know, for the believer, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he is the rock of your salvation. Psalm 18 says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength and whom I trust, my butler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Oh, I used to sing in children's church, Jesus is the rock of my salvation. His banner over us is love. And I love that song because we would sing it faster and faster and faster. Jesus is the rock of my salvation. His banner over me is love. The psalmist says, the Lord lives and blessed be the rock and let the God of my salvation be exalted. And then Paul says that they in the Old Testament, they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ is the rock of our salvation. If you've never put your faith and trust in him, why not today? Why not right now? Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Oh, thank you so much for listening today. Hey, Easter is coming. Love to have you come and worship with us on Easter Sunday at 7, 8, 30, or 11. Easter egg hunt right in the middle of the second and third service. Thank you so much for joining me today. If I can help you, shoot me a quick text, 252-267-2365. Thank you again. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett, 252-267-2365. God bless you. Have a great day. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.